So this morning, my hope and prayer is that after reading Psalm 73 with me, that you would act like a cow in front of a stone wall. I pray that you would be moved by this psalm, that you would be utterly transformed, and as you chew on the grass of Scripture, that it would be digested in all four of your stomachs. All right, I'm milking it now, but we'll come back to the cow later on. We've been studying the Psalms together. It's been a great series, the Psalms for Life series, and it's because they have such breadth and depth, and uh, each Psalm has experienced an emotion and outpouring from their authors. And we're going to look at Psalm 73 today, which, when described by the fourth century theologian Ambrose, he described Psalms like this one in this way. He said, These Psalms are a gymnasium which is open for all souls to use where different psalms are like different exercises set out before him. In that gymnasium, in that stadium of virtue, he can choose the exercises that will train him best to win the victor's crown. We're going to do a workout this morning. Spiritually, we're going to get before God and ask him, what does Psalm 3 invite us, challenge us even, to exercise? But before that, just like every good workout, we're going to do a warm-up, and I'm going to pray. That's the warm-up, by the way. Father God, I do pray for us this morning that you would speak through your word, through Psalm 73 to us, that we would hear your voice clearly and that you would would transform our hearts in this place, that we would gain new perspectives, that we would change this morning as a result of your word and your spirit coming together under the powerful name of Jesus that we've sung about already. In your name, amen. Amen. So before I became a Christian, before I put my faith in Jesus, before I professed him as my personal Lord and Savior, life for me was largely about having fun and sport and music and people liking me. And then in 2005, I heard the good news of Jesus. I became aware of my sins against God and against other people, and I felt the weight of it. I experienced guilt. I experienced shame. And... um, I know I had known that actually there was something wrong, that I had a problem. And when I heard the gospel, the good news, I cried out to Jesus for forgiveness, and the weight of sin was lifted off me. Jesus forgave me. I was free, and I enjoyed a new relationship with God that was better than anything I'd ever experienced, better than sport, music, people liking me. And that it was now due, this new life was now due to go on forever. And so I went to university buzzing with excitement and joy. I was a new creation. Jesus had saved me. Then time passed, a year, two years, and my perspective began to change. I began to perceive the carefree nature of my unsaved friends at uni, and rather than wanting to draw them closer to Jesus, I began to secretly envy many of the things that they were doing because I couldn't, in inverted commas, because I was a Christian now. They could drink to excess, sleep around, hurt other people with sharp words, with seemingly no consequence or guilt, it appeared to me, at all. And though my life wasn't going badly, underneath I felt the tension in my early years as a Christian. I didn't like the idea that they were getting away with it while I or so I thought, continued to worship God and follow him. And this was envy. And this envy was compounded by something going wrong in my life. A relationship ended suddenly, and it caused me to cry out, what's going on, God? 
You said you'd take care of me. But this, this is painful. This is upsetting. This is distressing. This is not what I signed up for when I became a Christian. I doubted his goodness because from my perspective, what I had wasn't good at all at the time. And now 10 years have passed. And it's comforting to know that I am not the only one who has had this experience of envy or doubt. You may have even had it in your context, um, a time where you've noticed that something just didn't seem to add up. Young people, you might have had that realization that those in your year group who behave in a terrible way and break all the rules seem to gain popularity and status. The others that are outrageous and do completely crazy things seem to still succeed in their exams with no penalty whatsoever. Or maybe in a work context, you've encountered the avid atheist who sits a few desks away from you, who ridicules you for being a Christian or going to church, yet keeps getting promoted or getting uh, favor, even though they don't work as hard as you. Or perhaps you're self-employed, and you know that actually others might make more money of you than you by uh, doing certain things with tax or paperwork that gets them that just a little bit more, while you carry on doing everything to the button, yet make less for doing the right thing. That might be one of your contexts, and you know, even though those things are happening, that God is good. But while you're doing your best to follow him, others don't seem to be suffering as a result of not. They actually seem to be doing all right, those that don't follow God. So what do we do? How do we respond when we see that God's word is not matching up to our observations? How do we react to the fact that for some reason, even though at our root we believe God is enough, we doubt that for a time. Well, thankfully, either Asaph, a worship leader from the Bible, or David wrote Psalm 73 and put it in your Bible so that you could read about it. And we're going to read it together right now, and it should come up on the screen behind us. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord... You will despise them as fantasies. 
when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Amen. The psalmist tells a story of how he wrestled with envy and doubt. And there's plenty you could draw out of this psalm. Uh, As I was going through it, I found you could just dig and dig, and there's many, many points we could make. But I've got some specific things for us this morning in the form of this. The first one is, honestly engaging with doubt is important. In those first three verses, the author is wonderfully open. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His first statement is true, God is good. Then he gives insight into his own thought life. He says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. The author is confessing to doubting the goodness of God to the point of walking away from his faith. And why did he doubt? Well, he looked around and thought, something doesn't add up here. He observed a contradiction, faith versus reason, theological theory versus observed fact in the world. And he's right. On the face of things, a lot of the world actually does contradict a breezy faith in God. Um, Simply reading the news each week challenges our faith and the statement that God is good. And this is a major obstacle for unbelievers as well as Christians sometimes. They say, why is there so much suffering in the world? If your God is so good, why doesn't he fix it? And this plays out on a macro scale, injustice, war in the world, and down to the micro scale in your personal environment. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this psalmist in a way, in the ways he's mentioned so far, the envy, the fist shaking, as I mentioned. But the part that struck me between the eyes when I read this is in verse 15. It said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And I had to read it a few times to get my head around it. But he's saying, if, if. That's when I realized not a lot has changed in 3,000 years. Because the author of the psalm doesn't tell anyone that he's wrestling with doubt. He kept it to himself. And as I mentioned, if it was Asaph that wrote the psalm, well, he's a lead worship leader in the church And maybe he was due to be leading worship in the temple that day or preaching. And I thought to myself, all right, fair play. If he's got to stand in front of everybody, he's not going to stand there and go, I don't believe any of this. I think it's a load of rubbish. Like he's not going to stand there and sing that because the temple dwellers would have probably noticed. Well, you'd hope they would notice, wouldn't you? But the fact is he mentions it in this psalm. He brings the reality to us because that is exactly what we are prone to doing today. And it's typical, isn't it? Someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? What do you say? Oh, I'm fine. But if something devastating, if something agonizing has happened in your life, 
Okay, it may not be appropriate. It may not be the time to tell somebody and pour it all out in one go. But actually, we're so good at squashing it down, at denying it, if you like, that we're even in any kind of turmoil about something that could have happened in the recent past or even in the present. And whatever the cause of the doubt may be, whether it's on that macro scale, suffering in the world, or the micro scale, something that's happened in your life or a personal envy of others, we all have doubts. When reflecting on the world's suffering uh, and how that could cause doubt and faith, Pastor Roy Clements of Eden Baptist in Cambridge in the late 70s said this. He said, every Christian at some point, some time or another, questions their faith. Real faith confronts the world's suffering. Blind faith ignores it. Real faith has to accept the experience of doubt that accompanies its confrontation with suffering in the world. He goes on to say, doubt is not the opposite of faith. We are not to confuse doubt with unbelief. Doubt is something only a believer can experience. You can only doubt what you believe. Doubt is to unbelief, what temptation is to sin. A test but not yet a surrender. And I personally found that of comfort, because then the truth must be that it's okay to doubt. A man that was very familiar with doubt in the Bible is a man called Job, and he has a remarkable testimony. In the prime of his life, everything gets stripped away from him. Flocks, money, family, wealth, everything is removed, and the Lord allows it. He has everything taken away, and he is left with his wife and his friends, and even they're not very helpful. They say, just curse God and die and be done with it. And yet he stays faithful and true to God, doesn't curse him. And he wrestles with doubt. But Job's struggles teach us a lesson. They show us that through his doubt, through his struggles, he found faith, and his faith continued to be developed and strengthened as the story went on. He then comes to the end of his story and has found fulfillment again in God alone, despite the fact that everything is taken away. And God wants us to do this too. He wants us to honestly engage with doubt and grow stronger as a result. He doesn't want us to stuff it down, which is why honestly engaging with doubt is important. And that's the first thing. The second thing is this. We only get outraged when we make life about us or make it about us. The psalmist moves on to describe the wicked, the ones he's envious of, and he takes the truth he knows about God and states the observations about those who don't follow God. And in a slight paraphrase or a complete paraphrase, this is what he says. He says, look at the wicked. They're healthy. They've got no worries. Or they, they do what they like. They commit evil acts. They're proud. They like pretending to be God. Not only that, but they scoff and oppress others. Then they get paid for it. Then people love them for it. And they even question God's reality. And they just go on getting richer and richer. And they don't even care. And that's his observation. And again, we have something in common with our author. Because no one likes it when the wicked get away with it. Now, as I mentioned, the World Cup has just begun, and there's been many famous and infamous moments in past competitions. And you may remember the actions of a one Diego Maradona or Cristiano Ronaldo. One was an illegal goal, and the other one was an arrogant wink after predisposing a referee to send off Wayne Rooney. 
And in both cases, they got away with it. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And the English nation was outraged for a time. And if you are still outraged, you may need to do the Freedom in Christ course in the autumn. <laughs> you may need to forgive Diego and Cristiano and many other footballers or sporting heroes that have got away with it. Because no one likes it. No one likes it when the wicked get away with it, when we feel the intense injustice in these situations. And it's not only these sporting examples that we could raise. We could raise those of criminals who live in luxury on their own islands. Because crimes have remained unsolved. Crimes have been left open with no conclusion, and that means that the criminal got away with it. And we also might be aware of dictators who have committed atrocities, but peacefully die in their beds. But our psalmist didn't simply wake up one day and realize all this all of a sudden. No. The trigger that gave birth to this psalm is in verse 3. He says, I envied the arrogant. Now, it shouldn't be so, but if we're honest, the injustices and the world suffering doesn't often touch us on a daily basis. It's kind of out there. Innocent suffering passes us by because perhaps because we're saturated with stories of bad news about imperfect human beings, and it just becomes a bit academic. We become a bit numb to it. But it's only when we become the subject of innocent suffering that it looms larger than life in our minds, as it does for the psalmist in verses 13 and 14. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Now the problem here lies in human nature because we are inherently sinful. We are interested in us. And that introspective view inflames our envy and pushes us towards doubt once again. It occurs perhaps when we start to feel sorry for ourselves. When things don't go our way, we get a bit sulky. And you've always seen people, that's, when you're a child, you get a bit like this and you might stamp your foot and you get upset about things because they haven't gone your way. And I, I had to be honest, I decided that the psalmist was being honest, so I'll be honest with you, of course. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did lots of prayer in, a, in a four days. And I, we must have prayed, I prayed more than I'd prayed for a long time, as you might um, imagine, for this reaction to come up. And some stuff just didn't go my way. I didn't feel like the, a prayer meeting went well, and then uh, I just didn't get the work done that I wanted to do, and then I got out of my car, and my music folder fell on the floor, and my music just went everywhere, and I was sulky, and I was fed up, and I got home, and Sophie was like, are you all right? I went, I don't want to pray anymore. <laughs> and I, I had to have a bit of my own medicine, because when people have said that to me before, when they go, I oh, know I don't want to pray, I then take the mickey a little bit and go, Dear Father, so-and-so doesn't want to pray right now, and so I'm going to pray. And I had to eat some of my own, have some, take some of my own medicine and do that. I got sulky. What have I really got to be sulky about? Not a lot. But for the moment, I was fed up because it was all about me and my music folder. That's the thing that tipped the balance, perhaps, but it must have been building inside of me. I made it about myself. And this happens sometimes maybe when we believe we've received something we didn't deserve or that we didn't get something we felt entitled to. We get upset and outraged. We go the opposite way of gratefulness. We end up 
in a bit of a pickle. And this sentiment is expressed a little bit in this psalm, when the psalmist says, I've washed my hands in innocence. It's somewhat a bitter echo of the actions of faithful covenant participants in the temple who would have cleansed themselves to take part in public worship so they would be innocent and would be able to do it with delight. And it's as if this author is saying, I did all that ritualistic stuff. What a waste of time. What did it get me? What did I get out of it for doing all that? I haven't benefited at all. That's kind of what it's an echo of. And even just to parallel a little bit with the, the New Testament, there's a subtle echo of the prodigal son story, which was mentioned earlier on. In, and it's written in Luke chapter 15, if you want to read it. It's about two sons. One's younger leaves home with the, his inheritance and squanders it. And then he comes back. And his father wraps his arms around him and welcomes him home and slaughters the fattened calf in celebration. And the, other, and the older brother finds out and comes up to the door of the party and says, this is not fair. I've been here the whole time, father. You never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And now you're doing this for this young man who's just squandered all your money. He's outraged. He's outraged that his obedience and hard work as the older son has gone uncelebrated. But it's a bit like um, Fortini was mentioning earlier, when life is about us, this is what happens. But when it's not about us, when it's about God, you feel lighter. You, you feel the difference as a result of life not being about you. But we only get outraged when we make it, make life about us. So that's number two. So we know, we know we doubt, and we know that we fuel envy when life is all about us. So what do we do about it? What is the solution to this problem? Well, the psalmist provides it, and it's the third kind of point, third thing I want you to remember. We find, if we find our fulfillment in God's presence and gain a new perspective, that's the solution. Verses 16 to 17 prove to be a turning point in this psalm. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The first thing our psalmist does to remedy his envy and doubt is that he returns to God's presence. Willingly or unwillingly, we don't know. We don't know whether it was his job and he had to go or whether he went in there on his own. Accord, as it were. But that's the revelation that comes. He gains three new perspectives once he gets back into God's presence. The first new perspective he gains is on the wicked and their destiny. And he uses the word surely here for the second time in the psalm as he recalls the destiny of those who do not put their faith in God. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors, they are like a dream. When one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And this is a wake-up call for anyone who hasn't put their trust in, in God during David and Asaph's days. And it's a wake-up call for anyone here today who hasn't placed their trust in Jesus and received forgiveness for their sins. If you haven't done that, then you're on the side of the wicked. And he describes how when this life ends, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if your faith is not in God, you will hear the words, I never knew you from God. And will then be despised 
like a bad dream that when the light is switched on, you realize it was all nonsense anyway. And that's the life of the prosperous, the wicked in a nutshell. All the fame, the fortune, the success, the empires, the cash, gone like a bad dream. Have you ever had a bad dream where you've been dreaming something terrible and then you wake up and, oh, suddenly you're awake and you switch the light on and you go, ah, oh, <laughs> how stupid. It's just a dream. It's just a giant banana coming to attack me. <laughs> They're not real. And you despise it. Yeah, that's not real. That can't hurt me. Well, that's how God responds to the wicked, to those who haven't put their faith in him at the end of this life. He despises them as a fantasy. And our, our perspective is shifted here. The psalmist remembers that the unsaved, for all their worldly wealth and prosperity, will be held to account for what they've done, just like all of us will. And this should not only remind us of the joy of our salvation, but motivate us to warn others, to warn your schoolmates, to warn those in your year group or drama classes, to warn your colleagues, to warn your friends, to warn your relatives as well, because the God we love, the God we face, will judge all with equity and perfect justice in the end. So that's the first new perspective he gains on the wicked and their destiny. The second is this, a new perspective on himself. In verse 21 and 22, he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now, the new perspective on himself comes hand in hand with a powerful statement, which when uttered both then and both now, I believe is a courageous and liberating thing. And I always tell the guys, uh, youth, this. The most powerful, courageous, liberating thing you can say is, I was wrong. Because that acknowledgement humbles you immediately and is so important when going through life. The psalmist says, I was wrong, but then kind of adds to it. He becomes self-deprecating. He says, I was senseless. I was ignorant. A brute beast. Imagine a brute beast, doesn't think, just charges in. That's what he compares himself to, and he recognizes that those thoughts were wrong about the wicked, and he decides to turn away from them. And he's now in the presence, the sanctuary of God, and it's changing him for the better. And this, this is why going to church is such a healthy habit for you and me. Because when in God's presence, we see things differently. We see things as they truly are. It prompts us to reflect, like we did this morning, on the powerful name of Jesus, the power that is in simply his name that can change situations. It enables us to literally be transformed by the renewing of our minds on a regular basis, week to week, which is why it's so important that we're here, so important that we get together, that we lift our hands in worship, that we share, that we hear stories, that we lift all the honor and glory to God and are able to say he is good. But this repentance spurs on our psalmist. It spurs him on to remember that despite his doubts, he's still a child of God. He says in verses 23 to 26, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He comes to terms with his doubts 
And now he comes to terms with his faith. Because his faith declares, God is always with me. He guides me. He will take me to glory. God is enough. I might even lose my health, but God is enough, is what he says. And earlier in verse 2 of this psalm, he uses the phrase, but as for me, saying, but as for me, I nearly walked away from my faith. And by verse 28, he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. His doubts have brought him in even closer to God than he ever was before. And these words should encourage us because they give us a new perspective on ourselves. That's the second one. The last one is this. He gains a new perspective on the future. And the conclusion of this psalm contains three will statements, if you like, in four verses. It says, you will take me to glory. Those who are far from you will perish, and I will tell of all your deeds. From this point on, the psalmist knows that three things will happen. One day he will go to be with his God in paradise due to his faith. The wicked that he envied will not. They will pass away. And lastly, he will witness. He will tell people of the wonderful things that God has done for him. And I just want to encourage you as a church, in the last six months, we've seen four people come to salvation. We're going to experience baptisms in the coming weeks as well of those four people. And we are getting hold of this. We are getting hold of the, of the telling of the deeds of God. We are witnessing. And we've done it a few times now. We've been around. We've witnessed in the build-up to Alpha, and then Alpha has gradually grown, and we had an average of double figures on our Alpha course this year. You're doing it. You're getting it. You're, you're working this out in real life. You're telling of the deeds of God, witnessing, and then inviting people to come to things. So I want to encourage you again as a church, this is something we're doing because we've been transformed by God, because we continue to meet on Sundays, because we continue to ask to be full of his Holy Spirit. In the psalm that we've read today, God has given us the solution to these problems of envy, doubt, self-centeredness, and we must always seek to jump to, to the solution, to getting into his presence and being together, remembering that our fulfillment can only be found in God alone. So what does this mean for us? What is the application? What can you do in your life to remember what I've talked about today? Well, First one, I guess, is fairly straightforward. Attend church regularly. Place yourself in God's presence willingly or unwillingly. If you're one of the unwilling, find a friend who is more willing than you and get them to bring you along. But come and place yourself in God's presence. Be among others worshipping and you will begin to see things differently. A second application, find an accountability partner, someone you can be genuinely honest with, someone you trust someone that loves you and and is not scared to tell you what they really think, uh, and express your doubts to them. Engage with doubt. Engage with envy. Let them know those things that are in your heart. And my last one is very practical. You can put a reminder in your phone to repeat the final verses of this psalm aloud every day for the next couple of weeks. And my last piece of application refers to my introduction. I want you to learn to respond like a cow. And I need to explain that statement, otherwise you're all going to go home thinking I'm absolutely crazy, um, if you don't already. Um, But it's a quote from the journals of John Wesley, taken again from Roy Clement's book. Um, He describes this. 
John Wesley recounts his journals how, one day, he was walking with a friend who was very troubled with his personal trials and was expressing doubt about God's goodness. I don't know, he said, what am I going to do with my doubts? Wesley pointed to a cow who was looking over a stone wall adjoining to the road where they were walking. Why do you think that cow was looking over the wall, he said. Well, I suppose because she can't see through it, said his friend, rather naively. Precisely, said Wesley. You can't see through your doubts. You must try looking over them. He went on to explain what he meant. The advice, look to the Lord, may sound a little glib. It is sometimes used by Christians as a rather trite platitude to avoid really getting involved with other people's problems. But rightly understood and rightly applied, it enshrines a therapy which is the answer to the doubt which the psalmist here has discovered. It was oppressive to me, he sang, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Imagine if we all did something similar. Imagine if we all learned to face up to our envy and our doubt, engage with them, and look beyond them to God. Imagine if every time we wanted to withdraw from the presence of God and and go away from church, actually we went closer in and drew nearer to him instead, willingly or unwillingly. Imagine if we could get hold of these new perspectives every week of the year. We'd approach school differently. We'd approach work differently, our families differently. We'd approach with a thankful heart and divine contentment, knowing only God can fulfill us, no matter what everyone else is doing. If we could start each day knowing that God doesn't just have good things for us, he has the best things for us, that would be amazing. Being fulfilled by God enables us to say, truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart, to those who know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, to those who say what Linda said, God is my rock and my salvation. 